everyone, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Afar Media. I'm your host, Senior Editor Aislinn Green. And for the past six years, I've had the pleasure of working with some of the most creative and interesting people in the world. Comedians, philosophers, novelists, they've all shared their stories with Afar's readers about getting out into the world and just reveling in it. And now, each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from some of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. In this episode, we meet Peggy Orenstein. Peggy is an Afar contributing writer, as well as an author, most recently of Boys and Sex, a follow-up to her New York Times bestseller titled, you guessed it, Girls and Sex. She's also an avid hiker, logging 10 plus miles per week in the Oakland Hills near her home. So when she heard about the Kamano Kodo, an ancient pilgrimage trail in southern Japan, she knew she had to go. And she decided to go alone. Just a quick note before we begin, this story was originally developed for a special event with The Moth and Afar. Okay, let's hear what the trail had in store for Peggy. One night I'm watching Netflix, chatting with my husband, and undressing for bed, all at the same time, when my fingers graze a small, hard knot under my lumpectomy scar. My cancer's back. And just like that, my passport to the land of the healthy is revoked. The tumor turns out to be low-grade and slow-growing, and I still expect to die in my sleep when I'm 90 while holding hands with my husband after a nice dinner with the grandchildren. But this time, the whole breast has to go. My doc makes a new one out of my abdominal fat, which basically means a free tummy tuck. Now you're jealous, aren't you? But the downside is a grueling double surgery and a long, slow recovery. A month after the procedure, I can't stand up straight. Two months after, walking around the block in my hilly Berkeley neighborhood leaves me gasping for breath. For the first time in my life, I feel defective diminished rather than strengthened by trauma. That's when I hear about Kumano Kodo, one of only two UNESCO World Heritage pilgrimage treks. A 10th century network of trails about 100 miles south of Kyoto, walking them is supposed to leave you reborn and rejuvenated. It seems exactly what I need to force a kind of reunion between that intangible, free-floating thing I think of as me, my mind, my soul, whatever it is, and this package of meat that carries it around. I choose the Nakahechi, or Imperial Route, 42 miles over five days across the mountains of the Ki'i Peninsula. It starts at a river reputed to cure all ills, which already seems a good sign. Honestly, I'm not much of a spiritual person. I'm also not an ascetic. My idea of roughing it is sleeping on 200 thread-count sheets, But although there are only a few places to stay on the track, which limits the number of hikers, I noticed they all mentioned the quality of their cuisine. I do love Japanese food, so I figure I'll be fine. The first day is only 2.3 miles, which sounds like a snap. I walk my dog further than that. What I don't reckon on is that the ancient Japanese didn't believe in switchbacks. One of the basic precepts of Japanese culture is gaman, Enduring the unendurable with stoicism. That means if you're going to climb a mountain, you go straight up. 
in this case, picking your way over a trail covered with roots and boulders. After about a half hour, I pass a small stone statue that looks like a cross between a baby and a monk. I know this dude. It's Jizo, a bodhisattva who protects travelers and small children, especially dead infants, whom he guides on to their next lives. Years ago, God, a lifetime ago, I had a miscarriage while I was working in Tokyo, and I made an offering of toys and candy to a Jizo shrine there. I loved that the Japanese had something I could do with this huge grief I was carrying. Back home after pregnancy loss, you're just supposed to, you know, come on. That evening, I sink neck deep into a traditional scalding Japanese bath and gaze out a window at a perfectly tended garden. That's followed by a multi-course feast featuring local ingredients. The next day, I hike. It's May, just after Children's Day in Japan. Bright-colored carp streamers still fly from houses in the small towns I stroll through, meaning that little boys or little girls live inside. Other roadside displays are more... eccentric. Like the life-size, home-carved wooden Pinocchio, holding his penis with one hand, peeing real water into a trough, while waving with the other. A sign next to him reads in English, Welcome to Kumano Kodo. Have a nice trip. Mostly, though, I'm alone in the forest. I've sworn off electronics, no music or audiobooks to distract me, just the creak of bamboo, the howls of distant monkeys, the snuffling of wild boars. They say that the spirits of the dead gather in these mountains, and when the fog creeps in, the trail starts feeling seriously spooky. Did I mention the howling monkeys? Another concept in Japan, chanto. That means more or less that there is a proper way of doing things, that everything should be just so, in its place. So if you're walking along in Tokyo and you think, gee, I'm thirsty, you'll look up and, boom, there will be a vending machine. If you think, gosh, I'm tired, boom, there will be a bench where you can rest. In Japan, someone has thought of everything. And that's my excuse, not just blithering idiocy for not bringing a map on a five-day trek through the wilderness. I figured the route would be obvious, and it is, most of the time. But there is that day, after about nine miles of walking, where I wander off course. Eventually, I see a little old lady doing laps around a vacant lot. I know enough Japanese to ask a question, but not to understand the response. So I ask her, Kumano koro wa doko desu ka? which more or less translates to, where is the goddamn trail? She takes me by the hand, speaking rapidly and, to me, incomprehensibly, and points. I don't know for sure what she says, but in retrospect, I believe it was something like, walk down that incredibly steep hill, past the junior high, and around the lake for about a mile, at which point you will hit a dead end and it will start to rain. When you turn around and trudge back, adding a good two miles to your already exhausting journey, I'll be gone, but you'll find the marker for the trail you were looking for approximately 20 feet behind where we're standing now, which is exactly what you deserve, you clueless, mapless, non-chanto foreigner.
Day three, I slide my hiking pole off my wrist so I can take a selfie. And before I know it, it slips out of my hand and tumbles over the edge of the mountain. Without thinking, obviously without thinking, I go careening after it, sliding down 30 feet before smacking into a tree. I try to climb back up, but my feet slip on centuries of moldy leaves, and instead, I slide down further. I try again, and a third time. I sit there, looking up to where I'm trying to go, my stomach clenching, my heart pounding. No one knows where I am. Since my notion of a pilgrimage involves a certain amount of isolation, I've told my husband that I won't be in touch on the trail. I pull out my phone. There's no service. It's possible that no one else will happen by today or tomorrow. I suddenly realize why you're not supposed to hike alone, especially when you have no idea what you're doing. I envision a long, cold night in the mulch and in an ironic reintegration of mind and body, not really the kind I'd imagined. The panic of that thought sends me zooming up the side of the mountain, my legs probably spinning like a Roadrunner cartoon. 11 miles later, I stop at a lookout point that offers the first glimpse of the Grand Hongu Taisha Shrine. There's a plaque telling the story of a 10th century female poet who made it this far, then realized that she was menstruating, so was impure and wouldn't be able to enter the temple. I feel like I found a sister, another woman millennia apart, who struggled with the limits the female body can place on your heart. But here's the thing. That night, the deities from the shrine came to her in a dream and said, even gods are impure. We mingle with dust. We aren't put off by a bit of blood. I'd never heard any other religious culture, or for that matter, any other public trail, tell a divine story about a woman getting her period, let alone commemorate that story for posterity. I make sure my hiking poles are safe. And then, you better believe I take a selfie. On the last day's trail, there's a three-mile stretch called the body-breaking slope that ascends more or less straight up 2,600 feet, again around roots and branches and up stone stairs that through some cruel topographical illusion appear, as you're climbing, to be endless. For a while, I think they actually might be. All along Kumanokodo, travelers have placed rocks in piles as a testament to their presence. It seems to me like the natural world equivalent of graffiti, so I haven't done it. But when I summit the body breaker... I place a stone on top of a pile, then another, for good measure. A few hours later, I emerge from a cypress grove to see Nachi Falls cascading down a mountain behind a three-story vermilion pagoda. Nachi Taisha is home to the Shinto goddess of both creation and death, as well as the Buddhist goddess of mercy. I walk down more flights of stone stairs, through a wood gate, and finally to the roaring falls themselves. A light spray that's supposed to confer longevity hits my face. I fill my body with healing water from a dragonhead fountain and take a long swig. My pilgrimage is over, and I'm dead on my feet. Also a little bit reborn. My body and my spirit have both, together, gotten me through the last few days. It's not that I've regained the invulnerability of my youth. Those days are gone. But I found my resilience. And in the end, maybe that's better.
That was Peggy Orenstein. Peggy is still in the Bay Area, and she says she's been knitting a huge blanket with a really complicated stitch on needles the size of toothpicks. Sounds quite intense. She still finds solace in hiking the Oakland Hills and in thinking about a recent trip to Tibet. It was so dramatic and so different than anywhere I've seen, she told us. And when one's world can feel so small and truncated, the memories of having gone somewhere new and transformative are truly sustaining. Well said, Peggy. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast was produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff Jen Grossman and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Koresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redmond, Sarah Storm, and Irene Wang. I'm Aislinn Green, your zoomed-out, under-traveled host. I can't wait to hit the road again. Until we all freely can, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? What's yours?